You said a couple of weeks ago that um, you were thinking about marketing maybe slightly differently hmm. in, uh, in the new year. Here we are in the new year. Well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? What's going to change? I don't know, really. I need to, I need to reevaluate a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to... What I always do at this time of year is go over my little, what I call the brain. It's my little access database that I wrote that right. has all of my stats and figures and numbers and all kinds of things you like that. You sit there and look at the brain. I look at the brain, and the brain gives me the answers. All right. And, uh, for example, I've already started looking at it, and it's telling me already that the, um, the, the distance between inquiry and booking mm. is stretching. Time-wise, oh, so, I thought it was contracting. For me, it's stretching. Oh, right. Okay. And for you, maybe it's contracting. Isn't that weird? Yeah, but also, I was thinking we were uh, um, the the distance. You know, somebody ringing you up and saying, "I've got a wedding." Is it's sometimes now as little as two to three months? Yeah, no, I'm on about. Sorry, I'm on about. We've, we've got cross wires here. Too much, uh, too much vegan wine for me over Christmas. <laughs> I'm on about the mo- from the distance from when they send you the email to right. say hello. Can you photograph my wedding? Oh, right. And when they pay a deposit, ah, that is oh, expanding. Now that had yes, you are absolutely yes. right. Why do you think that is? Uh, people are just there's more choice, isn't it? Mm. Supply and demand, equilibrium, economics, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So more choice, and so that my little brain told me that. It said, this is what's happening. And also, interestingly, it told me that the, uh, the inquiry period is shifting. So last year, not so much was it mostly January and February inquiries. Uh, it moved quite a bit to, where, where to May and June. I had right, a lot okay. more inquiries than I had in previous years. It's always January is a good time, mm. a strong time. Generally, yeah. yeah. So we'll see what happens this January. Mm. I have a feeling that might become a question on the show sometime. The Fuji Cast. So welcome to the Fuji Cast. Slightly different week. Second week we've been doing this before we get back to the normal normal show. Whatever it, whatever is normal, as uh, as from from next week. Um, it's our second week of a kind of a best of the guest show, but um, also some of our our favourite moments. And um, one of my favourite moments over the last year. Uh, was when we did, uh, do you remember that feature, Wedding Guest or Bird? Yeah. <laughs> when, Kevin, when, Kevin, when Kevin played, well, I tell you what, I'm not going to explain it, just listen to it. This, this is Kevin playing Wedding Guest or Bird. You know when you're uh, at weddings, how there's always a, um, and actually any event, but this just happens to be weddings, there's always somebody that's a little bit more screechy uh, somebody that during the day the alcohol gets plied a little bit more and they you know they scream and screech and do you know that guest mm-hmm. and it's usually mad auntie sue isn't it mm-hmm. everybody has a mad auntie sue yeah i had a mad auntie sue well an auntie sue do you remember a time when uh, when people were just you, did, you weren't allowed to call adults by their first name they had to be aunties yeah. it might be just a british thing oh uh, i don't know i saw my auntie nancy this weekend for the first time in a long time uh, aunt, auntie who nancy i think said auntie dancy <laughs> <laughs> There's a great auntie name, Auntie Nancy. Auntie Nancy. Is she a real auntie or is yeah, she? Yeah, kind of. She was. Oh, no, I don't mean like like that. No, that, no, that she was auntie my... as in dad's dad's um, friend, kind of. No, guy. no, no. She's she's my dad's <laughs> brother's second wife. Right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, technically. Right. Um, but she's American, although yeah, she yeah. lives in Pool, and we <laughs> see her very infrequently. And uh, I still call her Auntie Nancy. Do you? Yeah, All and right. I think it's kind of expect. I think in America that it's a thing, and so she is it in America as I well. So. Guys, let let us know. Do you call? Do you, as a child, do you have to call them auntie if they're yeah. Uh, certainly in in, um, in 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 some continents, auntie is a is a form of reverence, isn't it? For a oh, mother, certainly. You, oh, you mother, yeah, mother, yeah, mother, yeah, definitely yeah, yeah, in yeah, Africa, yeah. mother, mother, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. still I still like I I still kind of get Gemma to call me husband, Kev. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I was at this wedding over the weekend, and um, and there was a there was a particular guest, and she was screeching. 
I mean, she, um, she was really two sheets to the wind. Yeah. Gone, gone, yeah. absolutely. So much so that at one stage, even the groom said, have you got a picture of, of Mad Auntie Sue or whatever her name was? I said, yeah, I've got quite a few, actually. She's featuring in, in, quite, a few, in quite a few pictures. So I, I, I was recording a photo film that day. So I've got lots of... Um, I, honestly, as I was going through the audio the morning after the wedding, and I was sitting at the breakfast bar and just downloading wed- uh, the, the wedding audio from the day, day prior, Sam um, said, uh, who is that? In <laughs> said, well, that's... That's Mad Auntie Sue, that is. <laughs> and she's all the way through all the regular speeches. She's through everything. Just audio picked up during the day occasionally. So um, I thought she sounded like a squawking bird, really. Well, Sam said that as well. She could be a squawking bird. So I thought this morning, for your pleasure, we're, um, we're, we're, we're going to play a special game. It's called Wedding Guest or Squawking Bird. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. I've got one, two, three, four, five. Okay. You have to guess whether it's a wedding guest or a squawking bird. Now, I thought it would be a bit easy if it didn't, if the squawking birds just had uh, a background bird song or anything. So I've, I've cleverly put the wedding in the background of every single example so there's just people talking or whatever right. so you can't tell right. by the background whether right. it's a bird or a guest right. are you ready for the first one? yeah here it comes bird you're right yeah oh, I've got to give you the correct sound hey <laughs> okay next one here we go that's a that's an anti-soup are you sure? does it sound like a chicken? No, it's an anti-soup. Do you think so? Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Next one. That's an anti-soup. You're very good at this game. <laughs> okay. Next one. This one. Oh, no, that's a tricky one. Yeah. That sounds more like a monkey. A I, monkey? I'm, I'm going to go for a bird. You're going to go for a bird? Yeah. Yeah. It's a red-legged something or other. Hey. Yeah, correct. Look at this. Right. Four to four. Four to four. Is, 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 do I get? Do I win a car or something if I get an extra ride? You right? can have a questions of the lifeblood of the show coaster. I've got one. Oh, you got one already. <laughs> you can have a mug. Oh, you got one of those as well. Okay. Last one. Let's see how you go. Yeah, that's an anti-Sue. It has to be. You want to listen to it again? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's anti-suit. Well. Oh, no way! <laughs> it's a Western screech owl. Oh. oh, my God. I feel like the person has rung in for the Guess the Voice competition and it's got up to £175,000. fell at the very last one. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Oh. So all those prizes, the car, the powerboat. No, oh, I'm good. I'm and a hearty welcome to the FujiCast in 2020. We're starting the year with a couple of best-ofs from 2019, the first year of the cast, which is an apt way to introduce the special show we'll be doing at the end of this month to celebrate our one-year birthday. More on that shortly, but we've taken the show out on the road a couple of times so far. Well, that's if you include the pubcast recorded just after our trip to the Don McCullen exhibition in the summer. But back in September, we pitched up in Brighton for a listener meet-up and show recording on Brighton Pier. At the same time, it seemed, as the TUC conference hit town, which made for an intriguing encounter with ours to go to the show. Can you believe that, Kev? Look, two people swimming out there. Do you fancy it? 
no. Look at them. Proper. Proper swimming. With their arms and everything. Not just standing there. Oh no, they're out their depth. Yeah. Is the other one alright, do you think? One's swimming, the other one just seems to be bobbing. Yeah, well he's swimming away from the other one, so... Yeah, I think they're alright. Stupid mind. <laughs> How many people do you think will come today? <sighs> Two? Three? <laughs> Have you ever done a photo walkabout? You've done your workshops, but this is not a workshop. Not really, not like a normal, just regular photo walk. It's normally a workshop, so... Uh, yeah, no, we'll just wander. We'll wander. We'll wander along the beach. We'll wander up to the lanes. What a day, though. Sunshine out. God, what a weird bloke that we met last night, though, in, <laughs> in the pub. Do you know, if anybody ever is worried about the fact that, as a wedding photographer, that, um, that people are they're a bit sort of aloof to you or, or, or you're, you're not worthy, that guy last night, what, what was his story? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, he, we were just chatting to him and his wife, nice enough. And then suddenly he just stood up. He said to Neil, what do you do? Neil said, I'm a wedding photographer. And he said to his wife, come on, we're going. And walked out. <laughs> and that was it. They're photographers. You showed him your X100F. The look of terror in his eyes. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I reckon he's a spy or something. He saw the camera and he was like, oh no, they're press. Yeah, uh, that's what it was. He's like, Two press photographers with one X100F between them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which wasn't even on or pointed at them. During that show, we spoke with Nick Turpin, the much-lauded street and fashion photographer who established the first international collective of street photographers 20 years ago called In Public. In questions from the floor, he was asked about the laws of street work, when you can make pictures, and his own personal do's and don'ts, and what to do if those you're taking pictures pictures of start to ask questions um well i think obviously you know in the uk uh we live in a democracy so everything that happens in a public place is a matter of public record so we're starting from that sort of legal perspective where you can photograph anything you can see in a public place um but that doesn't you know over the top of that you kind of overlay your own kind of ethical and moral you know position um and i think you have to make your own mind up a little bit about that i mean there's a big spectrum of photographers out there some people who are quite aggressive, like you know Bruce Gilden, perhaps, who sort of lunges at people. Um, and then there are people, probably a bit more like me. I like I like to work a bit like a ghost on the street. You know, people people don't really see me. Um, I guess my do's and don'ts. I don't photograph homeless people because they don't choose to be in a public place. Uh, whereas the rest of us all decide to leave the house and whatever we're wearing, whatever we do when we're in the public place, that's up to us. And I think if you get photographed, you know, then um, that's kind of you know fair game. But also, I think I think photographers, you know, as street photographers, we have to push back a little bit. Um, I'm very, you know, keen on speaking to security guards and saying, actually, you know, this is a public place. I can take pictures here, or, or explaining to a parent, you know, I'm just making a, a historical record. I have my photographs in the collections of museums, and I'm, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not doing anything uh, that, that should be vilified, you know. Yeah. And just explain yourself and, and educate a little bit. Do you yeah. find as soon as you try and enter debate with a security guard? that that becomes the confrontation that you're trying to avoid in the first place? Um, I think you can usually tell from the first sentences right. <laughs> how it's going to go. And very often uh, I will ask to see their, you know, the head of security. And I've, I've, in the past I've been up to the 15th floor of a tower block to speak to the head of security wow. and, and okay. got an apology and, and, and a promise that they will re-educate their staff. I mean, this has happened in the Financial District of London. It, but you have to be very, you know, you have to keep calm and explain the law and say, yeah. actually, this is a public place. Yeah. Public are coming and going. Um, it might be privately owned, 
but uh, if the public are coming and going freely then it's a public place and I can take pictures there and before we continue with this second of two specials charting the route of the Fujicast's first year this seems to be as good a time as any to remind you of the upcoming first birthday recording on Jan the 30th at the House of Photography in London we'll be putting on a special live audience show later this month to celebrate 52 weeks of the Fujicast come early of course as uh, I'll be there with Kev to do a meet and greet and just chat about stuff before the microphones go live. And the show starts at 6.30pm. Across three floors at 8 to 9 Longacre, Covent Garden in London, the House of Photography Fujifilm's bold new venture showcases the complete lineup of cameras, including the Instax crew, and has its own dev lab on site. There's a photo exhibition space, an education area for demos and talks. If you want to get hands-on with kit, there's a chance to do that as well. There's nothing quite like this anywhere else in the world at the moment, so we're really very lucky to have this in London, close-ish to where we record the studio shows every week. Well, certainly in proximity terms when you consider a great segment of the Fujikas audience is in America and Australia and other parts of Europe, so thank you very much for that. The show's special guest, Andreas Georgiadis from Fujifilm, who heads up marketing and knows all those nudge-nudge secrets, will be taking questions from the audience. So come equipped with a list of stuff you'd like to know, and of course we'll be talking photography in general. Now this is a ticketed show, just so we can get an idea of how much cake to bake, of course. There's no charge, it's free to be there. But if your name's not down, well, you know the rest of the line. So to come along, just send a request for yourself and the plus one if you intend to bring somebody with you to the show's email address. Click at fujicast.co.uk. Click at fujicast.co.uk. Now, I read out a good healthy list of those who so far got first come, first served tickets on last week's best of show. And if your name was read out, you'll be contacted very soon with further details. Now, let's add some names to that list. Helen Fennell, Willem Cooper, Brian Boyce, Wayne Lahr, Sikanda Rana, Bartek Witek, Darren Rose, Sasha Slavnich, you have two tickets, Andy O'Hara, Carl Hare, Patrick Cowell, Joe Jocelyn, The Two Jacks, Jack Body and Jack Lardenberg, Kathy Myers, Nicholas Boishardi, Michael Creedon, Paul Wright, David Holloway, Patrick Gomez, Gordon Baxter, Nick Haig, Stuart Chambers, Paul Bevan, Dominic Witten and Steve Brand. Both myself and Kev look forward to welcoming you along to the House of Photography in London on the 30th of January, but weeks away. Now, back to some of those guests we've enjoyed having on the show over the last year in the second of the best of two-parter. Canadian ex-photographer Ian McDonald joined us in episode 31. Now, we had a lot of positive feedback from Ian's appearances. He got to grips with the subject of mental health in the photography industry and how photography helped him recover from PTSD after years of working as a paramedic. And though it may not immediately seem connected, we do get questions from time to time about how photographers can become ambassadors for a brand. Ian seemed well-equipped to answer that very question. If your goal is recognition, you're always setting yourself up for failure because it's not sustainable. I mean, we can see what Instagram is doing to people's mental health that are obsessed when there's an outage for 24 hours or they didn't get enough likes on a photograph. And then the second part of it is that it's not sustainable. Um, it You fall into that publish or perish thing and you're always feeding the machine that is recognition. But I think if you just do what brings you joy, what intrinsically fulfills you, 
brands that are like-minded will find you. And if you work well together, a relationship is born from that. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing that you have to force yourself to sustain because it's what you would do even if that brand didn't find you. And the mental health thing, we're just about to come on to the PTSD um, subject. Mm -hmm. Am I right in saying that Canada are one of the early adopters of the, the system with Instagram of not having likes showing? We were one of the places that Instagram piloted it. Now that never happened to my account. So I'm sure they just randomized a small number of accounts to see what the effect would be. I would love it if they hid likes and things like that. Mm. Uh, and, and Instagram just made a return to what it was supposed to be, which was a photo sharing. Yeah. I mean, Instagram, Flickr, all of these things were really just supposed to be celebrations of this wonderful art form. Absolutely. And, and people have turned them into a, uh, a much different thing. So Canada was one of the beta testers for that, but I have no idea what happened or what the results were. So you've just finished your first book describing the relationship between PTSD and your photography. That in itself piqued my interest, Ian, to su- such a level that I, I felt we had to talk with you, regardless of your stature or your position or, or what you do as a Fujifilm ambassador in Canada. I think this would have been a fascinating subject, whether you're a Nikon shooter, Canon, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or even a pinhole camera shooter, I don't know. Des- describe this relationship, as you call it, for me. I know it has a lot to do with your former life as a paramedic, but let's start with that relationship. I, I think, I mean, I have to go back and shed some background, I think, to talk about that. But in short, you know, I was a paramedic for 20 years, and I've always been an artist at the same time. Uh, a musician, I did web design for a long time, um, and then I got into the visual arts and writing. And so... A few years ago, what turned out to be PTSD um, came to a head. Uh, And as you can imagine, it disrupted my life completely, um, my family's life, my health, my wellness. And so, of course, you go through all the the things you would think a paramedic goes through when they're trying to heal from PTSD. They they take time away from work. Mm. They go through counseling and everything else. But for me... Uh, I was very lucky that I also had photography and and music for that matter, uh, because the arts, um, they gave me something joyful in my life. They gave me something productive in my life to focus on at a time when honestly, just getting out of bed was a struggle. And having a camera was one of the few times that the demons weren't knocking at the door to be, I guess, sadly dramatic about it for a second Um, you know if you if you think about mindfulness practice and you think about when are you not thinking about the bills and when are you not thinking about income tax and for you when are you not thinking about brexit um (laughs) the camera was that time for me when i was out making pictures i wasn't sick I, i wasn't thinking about being sick i wasn't thinking about my future or my family's future i was thinking about making photographs and so it became a huge part of my recovery. Paramedics have one of the highest rates of mental health problems, don't they? And suicide. Yeah. Mm. I mean, if we were to go chronologically, there were little signs for years building up. Uh, you know, I 20 years as a paramedic, 15,000 ambulance responses. Wow. There were a lot of things that that we know now PTSD is not necessarily just one specific event. It can be, but much more it is um, a cumulative effect. Uh, and you see that with a lot of soldiers and, and people that worked in my industry. And so if we look back in hindsight, 
we can see years of building up of me becoming angry Mm -hmm. and frustrated and intolerant all the time. And no one pinned it to, oh, Ian has PTSD. Um, I'm sure some people just thought, if I can say this on your podcast, Ian was an asshole, right? Mm. Um, We've had worse. But yeah, but the reality is those were the signs of of cracks appearing in the dam. And then what happened is that it came to a head. Uh, it broke into panic attacks. It broke into insomnia. It broke into nightmares. And that's when I started uh, seeing a, a counsellor. And the moment that camera came out, did, did you know that, that there was a relationship forming that was rather unique? Yeah, I did. I I can think of times where I would force myself to drive into the city to shoot street, for example. Yeah. And uh, at the time, uh, I would be incredibly anxious, uh, nervous of of driving into the city. And that in itself was a very weird thing for me, because I've always been the classic type A personality, which I think most people that worked in my industry are. I thought nothing of managing a scene with, you know, multiple gunshot patients. Mm. I... I was a musician that performed on stage in front of hundreds, if not a thousand people for one show that I played. And so being anxious or nervous about just driving into Vancouver to take a few pictures for an hour was a very weird ego uh, destroying experience. Very strange, I would have thought. Right? But what was interesting was that I would park the car, I would walk out into the streets, I would sling my X100 over my shoulder, uh, I would put podcasts on, and I would start walking, and it would be hours into it that I would realize I feel good. Fellow Canadian Patrick LaRock showed up all the way back in episode 4 where we played a segment of his keynote from the first X-Weddings conference. From his session closer, Patrick shared his own thoughts about mental well-being of photographers and why we do this thing, professionally or otherwise. In the end, photography is a lot, you know, like any creative work, it's a lot of ups and downs. Um, I know quite a few photographers, and I don't know many who are confident all the time, or happy all the time. But when we get those spirits of doubt, I think it becomes really essential to remind ourselves why we're doing this, uh, and maybe look at the work we've done so far. There was a writer's strike at the New York Times, uh, which meant staff photographers were facing possibly an entire summer without work. And so they decided to, to, to start a project and go out and spend those summer months uh, documenting life in New York City. And they did. But as soon as the strike was over, everyone forgot about it, right? Until they found a box of pictures 40 years later this winter. You know, completely untouched, never developed. No one had ever seen those images. Uh, and there's, they've now been made public. There's a, there's a show in New York that, that's going on this summer, and you can find them. There's a bunch of them on the New York Times website. And it's crazy. It's this time capsule, right? Like, I mean, no one has a phone. Uh, so they're actually talking to each other, which is very strange. Uh, you know, kids are playing outside which is also very strange. It's like another planet beyond our imagination. But that's the power of our craft, right? Regardless of, I know we're talking about, you know, obviously we're talking about work and we're talking about, but regardless of the type of work we're doing, uh, regardless of where we end up with our jobs and livelihoods and likes and followers, um, it all started by just wanting to preserve moments. Um, That's our foundation. And it's our legacy, too. Uh, these traces uh, we leave behind, uh, you know, we're building the past, every one of us. 
uh, frame by frame by frame by lovely painstaking frame. Thanks, guys. Holding on to the fast forward button, we shared some more audio from the X Weddings conference, but this time X Weddings 2 in episode 41, where there was a chance to hear part of the Q&A session. You're about to hear from photographers Scott Johnson, Chris Parkinson and Soraya Corteville. But first a question from the audience aimed at Mullin's other half, Gemma. If she could have her own podcast, what would it be about? I think I'd do it on how, um, how to keep going through the tough times of anything in life a business or bringing up kids or swapping careers and because the more people I speak to and I've seen it obviously very close to home it's really really difficult and um, I've done a lot of work with um, something called solution focused hypnotherapy which is all about kind of looking for the happiness in life and not listening to all the noise so well, that was Kevin in the background you could just hear chirping in the question if Gemma actually needed that level of support surely Kev's shoulders large enough for a proper size husbandly lean yeah <laughs> no, that's why I do it <laughs> do a podcast on or sam and i could just i don't know i reckon we might record something about you two note to self then keep the studio locked for the foreseeable and only share alarm code with mullins so onto the serious stuff well serious ish as you'll find out question from the floor if we were to pick up a digital camera we had 10 years or more ago and try and shoot a wedding or say some street work now would it be good enough would it have the oomph to be able to stand up to the modern tech we favor now in our kit bag and to answer this question, Scott Johnson. Uh, ten years ago, I was shooting the S3, Fujifilm S3. Great, great camera. Um, the camera's just a tool, I think. You know, as long as you've got your, the insight in you know, what we said earlier about looking for light and location and stuff like that. Yeah, people don't ask JK Rowling what typewriter she's got. She just writes awesome stuff. She could write it on a 50-year-old typewriter or a brand-new word processor side. I think that's a good question, but as long as it's the artist and not the brush, you can shoot anything. Next question concerns starting up as a wedding photographer, and this one's Fujifilm-specific. Which two primes would the panel suggest a couple well with an X-T3? We threw this one in Chris Parkinson's direction. Well, um, I'm, I'm a believer. Uh, I shoot um, one camera, one lens for an entire wedding, and I shoot pretty much everything the 23 1.4 or uh, 35 equivalent. Um, um, and for me, that's the only lens I would need to shoot an entire wedding. For me personally, I don't like the long lenses. I don't want to. I don't want to turn up at a wedding and feel like I'm shooting wildlife. If that makes sense. Um, I want to be in amongst the action. And for me to do that, I need to have like a, a, a widish lens so I can shoot from me to you. Or yeah, and I believe that for me, I want to shoot a wedding from the inside out and not from the outside in. Um, so for my recommendation would just be: you don't need two lenses, just get a 35. But obviously that's different for every single person and their vision and how they want to shoot. Sticking with the subject of weddings, a question was raised about so-called wedding burnout and how the panel deal with it in the context of taking too much on. Soraya Corteville took this one on, although being the wild card speaker at a conference otherwise about weddings, her answer probably won't surprise you. I used to uh, go out with a wedding photographer and I was always a second shooter and I think one year we did about 60 weddings and after that we split up and um, I don't, I'm not weddings anymore. <laughs> 
that's how I do it. <laughs> Quit. <laughs> Staying with Soraya, I had a chance to talk with her earlier during the year in episode 25 and learn more about her fascinating experiences as a photographer in Africa. First of all, I'm intrigued as to how it happened because one moment you're motoring along with your really successful portrait business, yeah. and the next minute I'm, th- I'm thinking, was well, that Soraya? She's in Africa. What was she doing there? Huh? Well, again, that that came really about from boredom and kind of challenging myself again. My daughter had um, literally turned 18, was going off to university. I kind of had empty nest syndrome. was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And also creatively in the studio, I'd been in a... I'm, I'm as beautiful as my studio was, I, was getting, I could feel my work was getting a little bit samey. Mm. So I kind of thought, you know what, I need to change this up a little bit. And yeah, just contacted uh, an, an international NGO uh, see if they needed photographers. They did. They have something called a communications team, which um, involves a writer and a photographer. And they send you out to various projects. At the f- very first one was Tanzania. So I was there for four months. Just as my daughter had gone off to university, I then shut my studio down and then um, went off to Tanzania for four months. Because it's, it's, it's not the jolly that some people think it is. I mean, you, you've, you, you've just mentioned four months. It's not like, well, I fancy going for two weeks to, um, to, to I don't know, Kenya or something. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't work like that. You've got to, no. you offer yourself up. And I don't think, excuse me for, for, for being a little bit gratuitous with a, with a financial question, but I don't think people do that for the money either, do they? No. Well, yeah, you don't get paid. And a lot of it is self-funded. Luckily, again, I've got lovely clients. And for my very first trip, a lot of my clients funded me to go. Yeah. So, which was brilliant. And they, you know, even if I'm getting bookings now, they'll say, oh, where are you off to next? Is there any way we can help? And, you know, to have a kind of client base like that, that's supporting not only my portrait career, but my travel kind of adventures is, is brilliant. Would you say you're away sort of 50% of the, the year now? Or because No, I, no, it's no? not that much. Okay. It, it, always feel, it always feels like that with you. When I, when I, whenever <laughs> I, I look at your, in, your Instagram feed, I think, right, where's Sarah off to this week? <laughs> no, I try and do, you know, as, as, as portrait photographers and especially location portrait photographers, I'm normally relatively quiet kind of end of um, December to kind of March, April, when everybody starts getting brave enough to go back outside again. So yeah. if I'm going to travel, it tends to be at those times. Oh, that makes sense. And and, yeah. and, and I think I know the answer to this because you've half answered it anyway, but what yeah. what do you personally get from the, the experience? I, I mean, and in a more sort of, well, dare I, dare I use the word spiritual, and that, that's kind of spiritual sense, the, the takeaway, what what you as Soraya, as a person, what do you get from, oh, from, from this work? absolutely loads okay. i mean i couldn't actually say one there was one thing that i i took away from it because it's the very first one that i did was completely life-changing i mean i even at the age of 41 when i did it it just completely changed my outlook in, on life it changed my the way i approach everything when you realize how difficult some people do have it in this world it really does make you appreciate mm what you do have and like you were saying it's not the 
you know, the jolly that everybody kind of thinks it is. I, I mean, I, I would have people saying to me, oh, enjoy your holiday. Say, Do you know what? It really is not a holiday. I don't have a toilet. I don't have a, uh, you know, there's no showers. You, there's nowhere to wash your clothes. It is really very much back to basics. Mm. Live in these communities. So it's... Well, you're, you're not going out to photograph people in Hilton five-star hotels, no. are you? I mean, you're you're <laughs> no. going out there to um, to tell a story, and usually a story for something that, that that requires help and assistance, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it, yes, exactly, you're living in these very, very basic conditions. So when you get back to normality, it really is, my God, I'm going to appreciate everything yeah. I really have. You know, even just the fact of a, of a working toilet or running water, <laughs> some, something really quite that basic. Remaining with an African theme, in episode 42, the incredibly well-respected photojournalist Jason Florio, based between the Gambia, Malta and the UK, appeared on the show. I'd met with Jason in West Africa when I'd gone to the area to film interviews for a political documentary and we chatted about his work across the region. One subject that we spent some time discussing was his important film and photographic work with the migrant offshore aid station ship Phoenix. Jason spent 18 months photographing the plight of refugees making their way out of Africa by boat across deep waters to Europe on vessels ill-equipped to make that journey and often overloaded with passengers unable to swim. I wanted to know where his work as a witness and photographer crossed with just being human and wanting to help. A warning that this five-minute segment describes graphically the desperate situation faced by those seeking rescue and refuge and those actually doing the rescues. Yeah, I was, I was, I was very kind of aware that what I was doing was, you know, was definitely important because it, it, you, the organisation needs to have the pictures and the imagery to be able to keep funding themselves. You know, People need to see the realities of what's happening out there. Um, but there were points when... I did have to put the camera down because it was about uh, pitching in. And we had a very, I think the worst incident I was ever involved in was actually when we'd, we'd moved one of the ships to um, to the Aegean Sea. So we were working between uh, Turkey and Greece. Normally the rescues were happening at night. Um, the channel of water between Turkey and this small island of Agathonisi was was um, could be really turbulent. I mean, the wind would change, and um, a lot of these migrants, mainly Syrians um, and Yazidis, were uh, you were really caught unawares. And uh, we we had a situation one night, which was actually it was, a, it was one of strange, calm nights, very dark night, and the boat had been spotted on the radar, moving very very fast. We figured it's probably a smuggler boat. In those in that section, the the smugglers were on the boats in, in a number of cases because they didn't want to lose the boat. So they would pack it with X number of people. They would go at high speed and drop them on this very small island, turn the boat and go back to Turkey undetected. So we figured, okay, that's what's going to happen. We'd witnessed that before. We'd seen it with the night vision, um, people getting dropped, migrants go up onto the rocks and then a team from uh, Medicine Sans Frontieres, who's based on the island, would, would collect them. With this incident, the the mark on the radar the boat was going very fast and it it stopped really abruptly not too far from from the rocks so we got in our um it's called a uh a, a, a daughter craft it's i forgot the name of it now but anyway it's, it's a a very fast boat which we would use to go and sort of meet the migrants as such um and we got out there and it was just it was pitch darkness moving the light couldn't see anything and then we could start hearing these voices 
people shouting help you know in arabic um just lots of and we're like oh my god where's it coming from and then we'd spot a couple of people then we saw more people and they were spread out over quite a distance and at that point we realized that the boat had obviously flipped over and people had got tossed we had no idea how many people were out there um and at that point we you know we started the guys were jumping into the water the rescue swimmers rescue divers and um and we were all at that point having to help pull people up people were it was cold it was um january people are wearing multiple layers of clothes so they're obviously weighed down the life jackets were useless a lot of them were fake life jackets so a lot of the the migrants were buying life jackets were often just stuffed with a bit of styrofoam and it actually would weigh them down more than than save them and uh we started i remember pulling this one woman aboard who was pregnant there was myself um and there was a sky news tv team were with us and we all just put the put the cameras down and the um the correspondent was helping we were just trying to pull people in i remember uh, one woman she was had a kid close to her chest and i was trying to pull her up or trying to pull the kid up and um and i was going, wow, this kid weighs a ton i called one of the other guys give me you know help me try and get this child up first and realized the woman the the mother had tied the child with a piece of string to her and uh, so the rescue swimmer jumped in he was able to cut it we pulled the kid up um but there was two uh then two other children came up and realized those children were already dead and a third child came up so three children end up dying in the in, in this in this tragedy there was 23 people on the boat and that was just i think that's one of the, that's definitely the most difficult thing i've ever witnessed because the mother didn't they didn't realize the children were dead and we took them inside the boat the uh, doctor on board was trying to revive them but they had probably either whether hypothermia or whether it was drowning um that these three little ba- babies basically had you know had, had died um and I, th- I remember when we were lifting them on onto the boat we we they put them a on, on the deck and sort of covered them up and they we brought the two mothers out and it was just I think it's one of the most awful things I've ever seen in my life is to you know to see a mother with with two of her you know her two children she'd one one mother lost two children and I, I don't think that is anything that'll ever leave me you know it's just you, you as, as photographers we're supposed to say well we've got to say distance and stuff you can't you're a human being and and i think if you lose your humanity as a photographer then your your, your pictures will will fail i think you're listening to the second in a two-parter where we look back at the first year of the fuji cast playing some of the choice segments of the show and sharing some of the words of wisdom from those we've interviewed as guests now, you can't fail to have seen on the news the devastation being caused by Australia's bushfires, and with 2019 turning into 2020, the fires are relentless. There seems no let-up. Record-breaking temperatures and months of severe drought have exacerbated the situation, and in the worst-affected state, New South Wales, fires have burned more than 10 million acres and destroyed almost a 1,000 homes, and that was at the time of writing just after New Year. People have lost their lives to these fires, including volunteer firefighters, and it may surprise you to learn that 30,000 firefighters in Western Australia alone dealing with these blazes do so for the good of their communities, not for any financial compensation. All the photographers we talked to on the Fujicast are special and unique for their own particular reasons and stories, and the next working professional certainly had a tale to share. 
In 2019, I talked with Australian photographer Cameron Neville, a photographer and equally part of the working voluntary force that go out day after day to do battle with these ferocious bushfires in Australia. But being a photographer, Cameron also documents the work of these brave men and women in a long-tail project called Into the Fire. I think this year, 2019, um, certainly in Queensland, has been, uh, I believe they're saying now that it's been our biggest bushfire season yeah. in history. Um, so we've had a monumental sort of seven months of uh, continuous fires, um, which is unusual because our fire season is generally only supposed to last three months. So it's gone almost uh, twice over that already. So It's a bizarre um, thinking of it as being a fire season. You know, certainly in Australia, it's a, it's a very real part of, of life. Life, particularly, you know, where I live uh, here in southeast Queensland, the, the fire threat is very real. Um, a lot of us play it down, but uh, sometimes, um, you know, it is serious. I mean, we've had a number of very, very serious fires, um, you know, within five to six kilometres of my house in the last sort of four months. So, um, you know, I didn't, um, you know, in, in actual fact, you know, starting this project only really started, um, you know, six years ago um, when I came up to Queensland. I mean, I, we had the Black Saturday fires in 2009, which were devastating. You know, it was 173 people were killed. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was uh, Australia's worst ever bushfire disaster. I mean, it was uh, absolutely terrible. I'm fascinated primarily today about the inter, Although, having now chatted with you, there's so many other projects of yours we could talk about, but today it's Into the Fire, this this photojournalist project to document the firefighters who, who fight wild bushfires. Well, you became a volunteer firefighter some six years ago in, in order to make this series. I had no idea that the guys that attend these fires are, are local volunteer forces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The vast majority of firefighters in Australia, which I think number somewhere around 350,000, are all volunteers. So did you did you go in with the express intention to make pictures and document or to fight fire, or was it a real mixture? Honestly, I have to be honest, I'm not sure I knew what I was doing at the time. It just sort of uh, it, it became a bit organic. I... I uh, I had an idea that it would be interesting to see, and and to be honest, um, I don't. I wasn't sure they were actually going to let me take a camera, you know, behind the behind the scenes, so to speak. You know, it was a real punt in the dark. How did the firefighters view your presence then with the camera at, at first? Were they were they a bit reticent? Not at all. They, uh, I mean, you know, literally from the get go, uh, they were really really open to it. You know, and I was thinking back to you know when McCullen spent time during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. You know, the Marine captain who is interviewed in the that film made by Jackie Morris. Uh, on McCullen, he talks about how McCullen, you know, the other media came and stayed for one or two days and left, and and McCullen stayed for two weeks, mm. and he rescued people from uh, from being shot and all these things. And and look, like I can't compare myself to Tom McCullen, obviously. For me, there was a you know a big trust thing going on, and I I just felt like I had to give something back. Yeah, that that uh, you know that that occurred to me. Are you the firefighter with a camera, or the man who fights fires now who just happens to carry a camera? That's a really good question, and uh, for me, the lines are a bit blurred sometimes between that. I mean, you know, certainly of late in 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 twenty eighteen nineteen, I've, I I don't think I've shot as many pictures purely because of the you know the operational tempo we've been under 
um, you know, we've, we've we've had a lot of fires. We've we've got guys that have got fatigue and things like that. So I mean, uh, I think uh, certainly in this last six to eight months, it's it's been quite the res- the reverse. What are the equipment issues when it's when it's this intense, this this hot? Yeah, well, that that's it, the heat. I mean, I, I had to develop a kind of style where I'd, I'd literally whip the camera out and try and focus and take the shot and then it'd have to go back inside my fire suit or behind my glove because a lot of these are shot at night it's very tricky because i'm trying to pick up shadows highlights and of course obviously with the fire itself i mean i want i want detail in the flames and that quite often means that i have to you know underexpose quite a lot and then i have to try and pull the shadows out if i can um, you know, in post-processing. So um, there is um, – it can be tricky. It doesn't always work. And, and for me, if um, if it looks over the top, it generally is, and therefore and then I don't use it. Um, I mean, I, I have got to the point now where I have – you know, if I'm shooting at night, I have the camera on particular settings, and it, it seems to work. I'm not sure it should surprise you, but Cameron Neville is and was a talented and experienced wedding photographer when he brought the skills of observation learned so well photographing those kind of events to his work behind the lens telling the stories of firefighting in Australia. Likewise, our guest on episode 23 has 600 weddings under her photographic watch – her honed observational skills being used now to document the plight of subjects who simply can't talk for themselves. Joanne MacArthur is an award-winning photographer, and through her long-term body of work, We Animals, she's been documenting our complex relationship with animals around the globe, work that has taken her to almost 60 countries. In episode 23, I asked her what inspired her to take on such a mammoth project. Okay, well, my initial obsession was street photography, war photography, and photojournalism. And I was going in this direction. I was interning with uh, Magnum photographer Larry Towell and trying to figure out where I could go and what I could do. And I I, um, I knew I wanted to photograph, you know, strife and conflict and, and issues that were that are important in the world. And I said to Larry, I think I'm going to go to Afghanistan. And he said, he gave me some very simple and wise advice. He said, Joe, that's not you. He said, do what you love, do what you know, and do what you love. And what I know a lot about is, um, about, you know, about animals and how animals are treated and how animals live and die at our hands worldwide. And I started thinking about this and seeing that, yes, we have a lot of coverage of wildlife. We have a lot of coverage of pets and companion animals, but there is this other category. Uh, I call them the invisible animals. And they are the animals we have a very close relationship with because we eat them, we wear them, we use medicine that's tested on them, but we fail to see them in our lives. They are invisible. And uh, they are as sentient as the other animals we revere and care for. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I think this is my story. And I, I just started shooting close to home and I'm, I'm a traveler anyway. So anywhere I would travel, I would, you know, look at how animals were being used in, in those countries. And essentially it's a topic that uh, is, is endless, unfortunately, whether it's birds being kept, you know, at the local pet store and animals in the exotic trade business. I mean, you see that everywhere or whether it's more investigative work, um, investigating factory farms, bear bile farms, uh, all these interesting and crazy and terrible ways that we use animals. And so it uh, it became 
a preoccupation and an obsession. And also because I'm driven to take these images to educate people and help create change. So often uh, passion is expressed. And I think we've touched on that now within your answer, really, is the most important element of getting involved in a campaign this year. But I, I do think a healthy amount of frustration, which I think you've expressed, <laughs> and, and even anger can be just as expressive. Well, I'm really glad that the images communicated something to you and that you reacted to them. Um, people do. They are uncomfortable images. And I'm very angry and I'm very frustrated about how we treat billions and billions of animals every day worldwide. But it's a good question because I don't re really want my anger and frustration to translate because that will also translate as didactic and telling you how to feel and telling you how to react. I want to create images that are poignant, uh, uh, painful to look at, but beautiful enough that people will return to the image. And that's the big challenge with photographing. My God, like, you know, animals in their last moments of life as they go to slaughter or the confinement of hens in cages by the hundreds of thousands in a, in a single barn. Um, I, I try and show not just the animal and perhaps get a glimpse of what their experience might be, but also the focus is the constraints and the bars and the cages and the fences in which we keep animals for our use. So the project is called We Animals, um, which, you know, can have many interpretations. And so I want the images to make us self-reflect, but I don't want people to turn away from them. And if the images are just too uh, gory or if they are just too direct and not nuanced, people are going to dismiss them or not look at them. It's interesting you mentioned that didactic um, the, the, the fact you didn't want it to be that. Do, do you find yourself, um, particularly when you're with people that I, I, I suppose are the, the, the root cause of this cruelty, how do you disengage with them to then engage with the animals? Well, I really like people. <laughs> That's part of why I do this work and why I was interested in, you know, social issue photography in the first place. You know, the people I might have a really hard time with are the ones who are making the most profit off of animal use. So, you know, um, slaughterhouse workers and, and factory farm workers, I mean, they are people who need a job. Uh, I have nothing against these people. Um, people who are maximizing, you know, profit and designing the cages so that we can stuff, you know, 35 cages, uh, 35 birds into um an enriched cage instead of 10 and this kind of thing like it's it's pretty insidious and the public tends not to know about you know how the animals live the, the animals were eating and so um i don't begrudge people too much i i am frustrated but uh i'm just trying to you know communicate <laughs> through my photos if my words can't you know, quite do what I want. I, I try and let the, the images speak. <laughs> Changing the subject entirely in episode 17, John Swanell was the guest. John is known for his fashion and editorial work around the world, but he's also known for his work with the royal family across many decades. As I interviewed him for a forthcoming longer podcast and film, I noted the casual placement of various pictures of the royal princes William and Harry and a signed note from the people's princess, Diana. Despite what seems like a strong bond between photographer and palace, he seems genuinely surprised that the phone should continue to ring with royal commissions. Yeah, I've done. Yeah, I've done. Um, I've done quite a lot with them. Um, I'm always surprised when I get a call from them. It's really weird. Um, I did um, the Queen Mother's hundredth birthday, and I was pleased about that because I, I wanted to meet her. I'd never met her before, and I'd done the Queen a few times before that. And then um, we did the Jubilee picture. The seven. They asked seven photographers to do the Jubilee picture. Di uh, Golden Jubilee 
And then um, three years ago, they asked me to do the um, Diamond Jubilee picture when she was on the throne for 60 years. And I thought there'd be other photographers. They said, no, you're the only one this time. So I was really pleased about that. Do you feel like you have a special relationship with the palace? I don't know, not really. I mean, you know, you can't get carried away too much. You know, I go in, I do the job, have a cup of tea, coffee with, have a chat and stuff, and, and, and then I leave. It's a bit like the plumber. Go in, I fix the job, fix the pipes, and or the electrician, you know, get the wires right and everything. Everybody happy? Great, I'll see you next time, you know. I, I mean, I treat it like that. I don't go in thinking, you know, I'm one of the, one of the, uh, one of the family. You're never one of the family. You're never, you're never going to get close to them. And also, the Queen's been photographed more than any other person in the entire world. Nobody's been photographed more than the Queen. So... I go in, it's another, you know, it's just another picture for her. And she's incredibly professional, enthusiastic. You know, she, she doesn't look bored or she doesn't always thank you afterwards for giving up your day or afternoon. You know, she's incredibly polite. I like her a lot. I mean, she's lovely. Does the Queen know your work? Does she talk about your work with you? No, no, we don't. We don't do that, really. It's not, um, it's not, it's not small talk. It's not even small talk, really. It's just, um, you know, I just do the job and, and make sure she's happy with everything. And they never last to look at the screen or anything like that. They never, they've never, ever, ever done that. I remember Princess Anne, I photographed her. I did her 40th, 50th and 60th birthday, funny enough. And, um... Uh, the first time I photographed her, I said uh, I did a picture and it was looking really good on the screen. And I, well, it, in fact, it, it wasn't the screen in those days because it was her 40th birthday. It was, it was before digital. It was the Polaroid. I did a Polaroid, which I, everybody used to do in the old days. And I'd said, Mom, do you want to have a look at the Polaroid, see how you look? She said, are you happy with it? I said, yeah. She said, OK, carry on. They, they, you know, they never, because the, and, you, and you think, oh, I thought she might be interested. But you have to remember, she looks at the picture. And if she says, oh, you know, you made me look great, or she says, oh, that's interesting, or that's, you know, then everybody in the studio has heard what she said. And then one person might tell somebody else, she thought she looked really good in the picture. She's, and then somebody else might tell somebody else, and the papers get hold of it. Oh, she's really conceited. She really thinks she looks good in pictures. You know, it can, it can, you, so you've got to be careful. I realised when she said that, that that's why they never look at the pictures, never comment. It's only when you send the pictures in, they, you know, send a message or, you know, get their people to phone and say thank you. The picture's very pleased with them. To close part two of this two-parter, let's finish with some wise words from another statesman of photography in the UK. This time, Tom Stoddart. And as 2020 really starts to take a hold, some advice for anyone embarking upon a career in photography or simply carrying on in whatever genre. You, you always have to remind yourself that this is a... An, uh it's an amazing way to earn your living and and uh, you're literally the jack of all trades and and you see a lot of things but you're there for a short a short time so you can't possibly become an expert on everything um, but you have to remain interested and and you have to be interested in people and um, what makes the world tick and it, if you if you're interested in news and current affairs it's it's an amazing uh, job it's addictive isn't it very much addictive again uh, on my first job uh, as this kid on a paper the one of the old photographers said you'll have a, a champagne lifestyle on a beer salary and uh, that's exactly what it's been let's talk about your your legacy and the fact that when you're making some of these pictures the berlin walls are a good example are you aware how important your images your pictures are going to be I don't think uh, you're aware at the time. Um, I, I'm a great kind of believer that, uh, and I, I tell young photographers this all the time, that they're not shooting for the next day or the next 
week or the next month they're shooting for the next 20 years 25 years especially if they're on a on a, an important event um as i said i've been around this is my 46th year as a professional and it's amazing how many times photographs i shot 20 years ago 25 years ago i mean the berlin wall is, is a point in case i happened to be by by chance by luck on, on the Berlin Wall the night it opened. I was at Checkpoint Charlie when the very first people came through. Um, and it seems like yesterday, and in fact it's, you know, it was November the 9th, 1989, and uh, the pictures I shot that night are still being used uh, regularly. When do you stop? You never stop. Why would you stop? You know? Never? I don't see the point of stopping, and uh, <laughs> something that slightly irks me is that every new award, every new bursary is for photographers under 30 and you know there's all this help given to um, uh, young guys um, because they, it seems like their ideas are better than than an old guy and um, I, I really don't see that and I, I you know I take um, lessons from people like Elliot Irwitt and uh, who are still shooting well into their 80s um, I think ideas are, uh, are the currency of how we how we exist as professional photographers because I mean that and the the insatiable quest for news and needing to know what's going on anywhere in the world at, at any given time is um, is crucial really to being a photojournalist and so that's it for this week's show thank you for listening next week it's back to normal whatever that is Kev will be with me answering your questions so please make sure you you keep emailing them in as that's what's really kept us going week after week after week after week you get the idea tech questions are great camera specific ones are great too Fujifilm ones of course we need your photo disaster stories for that new feature in 2020 and of course anything personal anything that you feel you just need to photograph graphically get off your chest share some feedback or maybe help in a more human way something that you need or indeed some business advice if we can't answer it we may well know a man or woman who can so that all-important email address is click at fujicast.co.uk click at fujicast.co.uk use that address also for tickets for the 30th of january london live show at the house of photography we're really looking forward to spending some time with you thank you as always to blue wednesday for the theme and a big hearty thank you too to artlist we license tracks from the amazing artlist.io and without them the supporting themes for our interviews just wouldn't be possible back next monday as always the fujicast is an independent loading zone production email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way